Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the brand new WICB radio show, About This. On the show, I'll be sitting down and speaking with writers, journalists, and experts about cultural events and stories. It's really just an excuse to talk to people I admire or work I'd love to know more about. A little about myself, my name is Jessica Dresch, and I'm the host of the show. I'm a senior in the college and taking classes virtually, so yes, I'm in my bedroom right now. With the ongoing pandemic, I miss the serendipitous meetings with people or talking until 2 a.m. in my best friend's kitchen. As one of my politics professors says, you have some great conversations and then you die. So let's have some great conversations. Our first episode, I will sit down with writer Anna Karina Zatarain, who recently had a piece published in The New Yorker this past summer. She'll speak about Mexican mothers searching for their missing sons due to cartel violence. I'm really excited about this show, and I hope you like it. Okay, so hi. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. It's not live, (laughs) but I'm trying to make it uh, feel as live as possible. So yeah, do you want to just introduce yourself, a little background? Yeah, of course. My name's um, Anna Karina Zatarain. I am a writer and journalist based in Mexico City. And I actually went to school for architecture, not writing or journalism, but I kind of started to write right after school, mostly about architecture, and then started stepping into other things, Um, especially things related to Mexico and my home state of Sinaloa. So we're going to be discussing your piece that you wrote in The New Yorker. Uh, this past August, I think it was published. So do you want to just talk about how you uh, decided to write about this topic? Yeah. Um, So actually, about four months before I started working on that piece, I was commissioned by BuzzFeed Reader to review um, the Netflix series Narcos, which had just started its Mexico season. Before that, they had done, um, I believe, three seasons on Colombia. So I watched the show. It started um, right on the outskirts of my hometown, Culiacán. And my whole idea of the show was like, it's really interesting how in America, narcos and narco violence are always depicted like from their point of view and from authorities' point of view, like police against criminals. But nothing is shown about like the way society is affected by these sort of issues. So my review was kind of centered on that. And as I started researching, you know, different um, social repercussions of narco violence, obviously disappearances is a big one. And I came across the story of Mirna Medina and the group she founded, Las Raceras del Fuerte, um, which is in a town about three hours away from my hometown, Culiacán. So I wrote about them in that piece. just mentioning them, I didn't interview her or anything. And once it came out, a friend told me like, that sounds like a story on its own. So I pitched it um, to a different publication at first that um, in the end, it didn't work out there. But that's when I went to Los Mochis to meet with the women. So I'll ask you in a little bit to give a recap of your article, but before, can you just explain the term to disappear someone? In the BuzzFeed article, actually, there's a part where I say, like, in English, the word disappeared is a verb. Um, In Spanish, it's a noun, like the disappeared. 
los desaparecidos, it refers to people. Um, a desaparecido is a person who has been disappeared. Um, yeah, a person who's just gone missing from one day to the next. And in Mexico, as of October last year, I believe, there's 77,000 cases, reported cases of desaparecidos or disappeared persons. Can you give a recap for those who haven't read the article from the beginning to going to Los Mokis and meeting the search group and Mirna? Um, yeah, so basically when I decided to write this, I flew home to my parents' house in Culiacán. I texted Mirna. Um, I'd already been in contact with her through Facebook and she was very open from the start. Like, yes, of course, I'd love to meet. So I flew home and I texted her like, when can we meet? And it was probably like a week of just no answers or like one word answers and then no answers. She was very, very hard to get a hold of. Um, finally, one day she told me like, next Monday, I'll see you at 10 a.m. So I went to those mochis, got there at 10 a.m. And Mirna was not answering her phone. Um, she, I later found out, had gone on a search, had kind of forgotten about our meeting, I guess. So yeah, I just hung around outside of her office for a while. And by the time she came back, it was quite late. I hadn't planned on staying the night, but Mirna's, she's a lovely person. She's the sort of person that if you're with her in person, her entire attention is on you, which kind of explains why her attention was never on me through the phone. Um, mm. But so, yeah, she told me like, no, you can't leave. Um, you can stay the night, stay the night at my house. She really insisted. And so I decided to stay the night. And then that night she got um, a tip, an anonymous phone call where um, telling her where some bodies may be buried, sort of like the general location where um, some burial pits were located. And she told me like, well, we're leaving tomorrow at 6 a.m. on a search. So you weren't planning that at all. Okay, I, I was reading your piece and I was wondering if you had expected that because that's a really big thing to be a part of. So what was going on in your mind when you were deciding if you were gonna go? Well, Honestly, she told me and she kind of saw that I guess I looked a little bit afraid or nervous. And she was like, don't worry, we don't find anything nine times out of 10. Like, it's just maybe you, maybe you would like to see how we work. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So they're not going to find anything. And I'm just going to see how they work. And that's actually great for my piece. So then the next morning, we headed out on the search at 6 a.m. Um, it was a couple of hours away from the city. And they started searching. Soon enough, we split up into two groups. I was in one group where a woman received a text from the other group saying they had found something. So we all ran to the other group. And there was a pit that they had just um, uncovered with some bones, um, which actually something that's curious about that is that 
usually I had done so much research about burial pits and um, human remains that had been uncovered and it was always bones in all the photos and all of the descriptions. So somehow it just never even occurred to me that of course, before there are bones, there's a body, you know, but so they kept digging and kept digging and kept digging next to that pit um, on both sides of that pit until um, I was asked to start digging. I hadn't started digging at that point. Um, I guess I was just kind of observing and then someone sort of said like, everyone should dig, we're tired. And I was like, okay, that's my cue. So I started digging and I was actually the one um, who hit a person who had been recently murdered. Um, so yeah, that, at that point I said like, oh, I felt something like, I think there's um, a bag in here or something. And they all realized like, oh no, that's a recent body. So they started using brooms to sweep the, the dirt around it so as not to puncture it. Um, and yeah, by the end of the day, the women had uncovered 12 bodies. Five of them were recent. The rest of them were mostly bones. So this was like the burial pits you mentioned in the article where there's multiple locations of a number of buried bodies buried together that were disappeared. We were in a stretch of land that was right next to kind of like a, a small creek. And it seemed because there had been a lot of garbage that had been burned around there. And Mirna told me that usually after someone digs up a pit, puts a body and covers it, they'll burn garbage on top of it to, um, so that you know the smell isn't very obvious. Um, so when she saw that there was a lot of garbage buried around there, she was like, no, keep digging, keep digging, keep digging. Um, Mirna is really a natural born leader and um, the women really do look at her, look to her for direction um, in an almost kind of reverential manner. And she's very good at it. She's very unemotional when when she's doing that sort of work, which is necessary um, because the rest of the women can get very emotional. Um, and yeah, so soon after the first body was uncovered, they reported it to the local police. The local police arrived, um, the forensics arrived because it's illegal to remove a body yourself. You know, anyone can search for bodies, but once you find a human body, you, you can't take it. Um, so yeah, then the forensics arrived and they were the ones who are tasked with taking the bodies, but the women kind of don't let them do anything until the body is fully uncovered so that they can just take it because they really don't like how the forensics treat the bodies. Um, they don't think they do a very thorough job um, and something that's very important to them when there's bones that are uncovered is that every single bone is taken. They don't wanna leave anything. And really the forensics for their job, they could just take one. Um, but, you know, because all they need is the DNA to be able to match it and tell someone like, we 
you know, we found your, your family member. But for these women, it's very important to, you know, if you find someone's family member to give them the entirety of whatever remains. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that day, this all happened in a period of, you know, 48 hours. Um, again, I had not expected that first that I would go on a search, second that we would find anything on the search and much less that we would find 12 bodies, which is, was until then, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but the most amount of bodies they had ever found. So the women were kind of referring to me as their lucky charm, Um, which, yeah, for me, it was, it was, it's strange looking back on it now because I don't remember feeling afraid And for the most part during the search, I also wasn't very emotional. Um, I kind of kept an emotional distance. There's one point when I did kind of break down and cry. Um, But aside from that, I was, you know, very removed in a way. Um, And yeah, it wasn't until several months after, while I was working on writing the piece, that I started to kind of like feel it. Yeah, because it's one thing to go somewhere as a journalist with this wallop and observe something and then write about it. And then it's a whole nother thing to partake in such an intense experience like this. Those lines between your off time, regular hours, and then journalist working blur and it's almost impossible to hold back certain emotions yeah absolutely um and so after that i thought you know the piece is done um then i told an editor friend of mine about it when i was working on it and he he just said um like i'd love to read it so i sent him the final draft which had still not been published or accepted by my initial editor. And so my friend read it and the next day he texted me and he told me like, I'm sorry, but I really think you should pull it from the small publication that had initially commissioned it. I know someone at the New Yorker. I, with your blessing, I'd love to share it with them. I can't promise anything, but you know, this really should get bigger exposure and bigger treatment. So I agreed. Um, And the New Yorker took about a month to deliberate and get back to me, which was the worst month of my life probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And when they finally emailed to tell me that they wanted to run the piece, they also mentioned like, we would like to extend it and make it, you know, longer add more scenes, have you report again, and send you over with a photographer to go on another search. Um, oh, so I, that didn't, she I didn't realize. Oh, it I think you do write, you go back, like you mm-hmm. return there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so um, it was actually very serendipitous because the New Yorker accepted this by like the end of October and when I decided to go back, it was right on Day of the Dead. Um, And it was an interesting moment for me to go back because two weeks prior, there had been a really 
um, two weeks prior in Culiacán, my hometown, there had been a standoff between sicarios, um, which are gunmen um, for the cartel and the military. Um, a very, very big standoff, like the entire city was shut down for the day. And two weeks later after that, which is when I returned, it was Day of the Dead. So I decided to spend Day of the Dead with the women. Um, Mirna, the leader of the group, has already found her son. So she has him, his remains are buried in the cemetery. Um, and yeah, so that was the second time that I was able to spend some time with them. And it's another scene in, in the piece. And then the day after that, we went on a second search, which I don't write about. Um, but that's where the photos uh, that ran with the piece came from. And actually that day they found two bodies. Um, at that time, for some reason, on that search, I was very emotional and I was very scared, probably more scared than emotional. Um, I think the danger of that first search didn't really hit me until I thought about it much later. Um, so yeah, that was something I just didn't decide to include in the piece, uh, but that's, basically, oh, and then, of course, um, the, it took me a while to write all of this, to edit. I was kind of going back and forth with my editor. We were set to publish mid-March, um, and then COVID hit, and all of the news coverage was about COVID for several months. Um, so my editor and I decided like, this story will be buried completely if, if we publish right now. So let's give it a minute. And several months later, um, things were still not much better regarding COVID. I think at first in March, everyone thought it was gonna be a couple of weeks or a month tops. Um, so that's when he told me like, well, I really think it's relevant to add to the story, like what, um, how they have dealt with the pandemic. And so I conducted all of those follow-up interviews through the phone. The women at first weren't searching and this caused a lot of distress for them emotionally. Um, it's really all they do, these women, uh, is search for their kids. They go on searches three times a week at least more if there's any sort of tips or information that they get. And you would say the vast majority have not found their missing loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's over 100 active members in the group. And I would say probably 90% are mothers who are still searching for their children. And another 10% are mothers who've already found their children and have decided to continue searching because of, you know, the sort of sorority they've built with the women. And because as a kind of act of gratitude for the women who helped them search for their child before they had found them. Because it's such an intense activity, 
and something to devote your life to, what was the dynamic between these women that you noticed? And then what was the dynamic of you entering as a journalist covering this for a story? Yeah. Um, their dynamic is, it's, it's very interesting. They're actually all, they have such great personalities, very big personalities. Um, in Mexico, Sinaloa, the state where I'm from and where they're located is kind of known to be a state where people are, you know, very lively, kind of larger than life. Um, a lot of people mistake it for rude in other parts of the country, but it's just, you know, the culture there is very in your face, very direct. So they're always joking. They're always teasing each other. Um, I'm still in a group chat with them where they share the funniest memes. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're not women who are always sad or, um, of course, they go through episodes of, you know, deep depression, but a lot of these women have been searching for many years now, you know, almost all of them have other kids that they also have to tend to, um, husbands, parents, and friends. I think they've developed a very unique friendship between them. And whenever they're not searching, everything is very, you know, you can feel a friendship and a kind of like understanding between them. On searches, everything is, you know, very serious and um, somber. And they're, they kind of take turns crying. You know, if one of them breaks down, the other women kind of are there to pick her up, whisper in her ear, um, try to console her. And then another woman will break down later and it's the same thing kind of just over and over again. And I do think something that many of them told me is that no one in their lives understands what they're going through, not even their own family members, because as they say it, there is nothing like a mother's pain for the loss of her child. You know, you can lose your brother or sister or um, parent or friend, and that's a horrible thing. But as they tell it, no one can understand their pain except for another mother going through that. So I think that's a very important part of their relationship in, in the group there's a solidarity because they're all going through the same thing like this trauma but what is the attitude of the mexican government toward these collective groups that go out and search for bodies and are they ever scared of violent retaliations against them well Mirna is very, very aware. This is something I discussed with her and she's very aware of the dangers um, that her job kind of, that come with the work she's doing. Um, her answer to that is like, I don't care. You know, if I get killed doing this, I'm, I accept that. 
Um, I think the rest of the women also feel similarly. And as for the government, in recent years, especially since the case of the 43 missing students of Ayotzinapa, which was a forced disappearance um, perpetrated by the state, the, the conversation around disappearances became a really, really big subject um, on a national scale. So the government was pressured to address it, um, not just regarding the 43 students, but you know the rising number of disappearances. There have been a lot of commissions um, created to address it, but as far as activists say, and people who know much more about this than I do, um, it's not enough, it's insufficient, it's inefficient, um, especially because there's kind of a reigning impunity about it. Um, I actually was looking it up earlier and in 2018, there was 13 total convictions for forced disappearances mm -hmm. in the country. And at the time there was 37, 37,000 disappeared people that were reported. This is 13 against 37,000. Um, right now, the number is 77,000. I'm not sure. I couldn't find how many convictions there were, but I'm sure it's equally dismaying. Um, that's definitely a factor for why this happens so much because there's no justice around it. Um, one thing that I found incredibly sad is that the women were constantly posting on their Facebooks or in the news saying like speaking directly to whoever disappeared their child saying like I don't want to know who you are just tell me where he is like mm -hmm. I don't want justice I'm not I'm not gonna you know they already know that there's no way that they're going to get any form of justice they just want closure and I, I thought that was ridiculous. You know, people, they, they don't even consider it as a possibility at all. Um, and that is absolutely on the government. And so the fact that this is happening so much is in that sense, the government's fault. You spoke about this in the article, but can you just explain the psychological trauma that comes with having a loved one disappear and never finding their body and missing out on that closure? Yeah, so um, clinical psychologists describe this as um, a very unique form of psychological torture, which is um, called ambiguous loss because it is, it's exactly that, you know, if you ask a parent, well, one of the women once told me, if you asked me what was the worst thing that could happen to me, it was for my child to die until my child disappeared, because that's worse. One of the women actually told me that um, even if she did find her son at that point, because he had been missing for more than two years, she was never going to accept it because at that point it would be, you know, bones. She said, no, I need to see him. 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to understand that he's gone if they give me some bones. I need to see him. I need to hold him. And that was very heartbreaking for me to hear. Um, I asked each one of the women that I interviewed also if they believed that their child could still be alive. And they all said yes. And that was surprising for me to hear because, you know, again, a lot of these women have been looking for their children for years. Um, and it was an unequivocal yes. Um, they, despite all logic to the contrary, they have a small hope, I guess, that, you know, something else happened. There's stories of people being abducted and instead of murdered, um, they're, you know, forced to work for the cartel. So I'm not really sure how much that happens, but even if you hear that story once as a mother, I think that's enough for you to be like, so, so he might still be alive. Yeah, it's like your mind can run off with any possibility of where they can be, especially when you're in such a desperate situation. And yeah, it's it's a lack of closure if you can't see their body, if there's no physical remains of someone you love so much. Completely. And even one of the women who was part of the group, it was her brother who had disappeared. Um her mother, their mother was too old and her health too fragile for her to go on searches herself. But they did find his remains at one point and she told me that even then her mother would still set aside food for him. Like, so yeah, I think a lot of people think that um, disappearances are horrible because you can't get closure until you see the body and until you know for a fact that your loved one is dead. But I found in talking to a lot of these women that even that isn't really any consolation, that that just opens up a new chapter and a new torment um, that they have to navigate. And a lot of them, I, I believe, kind of um, after they spend so long not knowing, I think perhaps they're unable to ever accept it, even once a confirmation comes, because you know they're they're used to to thinking that it can't it can't be true, you know that they're they can't be dead because they don't know. So yeah, it's definitely something that has no possible positive outcome no matter what even if you find your loved one it's always going to be this torture I mean you said 77,000 disappearances just imagining that toll on mothers and family members and friends in Mexico you write about in the article President Calderon becoming president in 2006, and he really began waging this war against 
cartels and and cartel violence, but that actually having a blowback to uh, just these disappearances and overall violence. So can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So when he took office in December of 2006, he declared his war against drug trafficking. Um, And part of his strategy was to send military um, vehicles with military men to the streets of different cities where um, cartel violence kind of prevailed. So what that actually did was it made it a lot worse. You know, it's incalculable, really. Um, The military is, in many cases, believed to be working for or with the cartel. Um, In I didn't mention this in the piece, but a lot of the women whose children had been abducted and disappeared, there were witnesses who say that it was police who abducted and disappeared them. Um, So really in Mexico, the levels of corruption are too high for any government authority to be tasked with um, with reprimanding or, you know, stopping cartel violence. It's really too easy for them to become kind of entrenched. So that was definitely, it's definitely considered by analysts and researchers um, to have been a grave mistake that really exacerbated the situation instead of, you know, making it any better. So that was Felipe Calderón's legacy. And since then, the military is still present in the streets of many Mexican cities, including Culiacán. I was just there. Um, I actually spent all of December and January there in Sinaloa. And it's still the case. People are scared of police. They're not, they don't feel safer because there's police around because it's kind of synonymous almost with the cartel. Um, Which is why so many perception. of the missing, um, of the disappeared just go unreported and or just not exactly. even investigated. Right, so it's important to mention that in Mexico, there's 77,000 cases of disappearances that are reported you know, on the record. Um, There's no way to know how many there actually are because there are so many people who are scared to go report their missing loved one. And they also kind of feel like, what for? If like, what justice is there to be served if these crimes don't, they go unreported or if they are reported, they remain unsolved. You know, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of distrust in the government. And even though they have made some efforts, as I mentioned previously, to address this problem, it's really kind of more focused, I think, on reparations to um, the indirect victims of forced disappearances, which are understood as their family members, and not so much on stopping it from happening. 
you know, so. This might sound like a basic question, but is the main motivation behind all of these disappearances just a a need for money? Like if you're a cartel and you need money, you kidnap someone and then you call their friend or a family member for a ransom. And then, you know, even if you get it or you don't get it, you end up killing them. So it is money like the main motivation behind the rise of all of these disappearances? The motivations are varied. It's really, really hard to be able to say exactly what, you know, in terms of percentages, what percentage of the people who are disappeared were involved with the cartel themselves. All of that is, you know, impossible to know for certain. Um, But I did read somewhere, I don't recall exactly where, but um, I read that disappearing someone is a way to wreak havoc and terror on a society that is much worse than murdering someone. Um, So it's kind of a way for an organization, a terrorist organization or a criminal organization to sort of assert power and create fear um, around them. And I think that's the main motivation for saying, why would I take someone and, and murder them and disappear them as opposed to, you know, shooting them and leaving them on the street? Yeah, that that's something, you know, that there's a distinction there that I overlooked. You know, it's not just 77,000 plus people are just being killed right then and there and maybe their bodies are left there but these cartel members or whoever else are doing these disappearances they're going out of their way to find some secluded spot bury them burn some garbage to distract the you know putrid smell and so you're saying that it's really a way of mongering more fear in a community, more fear than you could of just killing someone in plain sight and leaving them there. I believe so. Yes. I'm, again, not an expert by any means on this, um, but it is a way to assert power um, and create fear in society in a way that is much, much worse and infinitely more complex than if you simply murder someone. One of the women, when I was interviewing her, told me that in the days after her son disappeared, she would pray and she would just look out the window all day, hoping that someone would throw his body in front of her house, which is insane to think that someone prays for that. But that just goes to show you how much more torturous it is to not know. And so, yeah, I do, I do believe that is a reason behind why there's disappearances on top of murders, you know. Where do you see this crisis of the disappearances in Mexico 
heading in the future? Um, I hate to say this because I don't like to be a pessimist, but I don't think it's going to get any better. I don't think it's, you know, an easy problem to solve at all. And um, in 2018, Mexico elected a president from an opposing party. Um, it was the first time his party has been uh, elected to the presidency and he, his campaign really ran on the promise of being different um, and of addressing these issues differently. And so far he has not. Um, it's been, you know, three years. And yeah, so far he really hasn't addressed it in any way that's meaningful. He hasn't really changed many things either. Um, removing the military from the streets was one of his campaign promises that he hasn't, um, he hasn't gone through with. So it just seems to me like I can't, I can't think of a way that is realistic that this could get any better anytime soon. Um, no, honestly, I, I hope it doesn't get worse, but I, I've seen these women and how, you know, Mirna, for instance, isn't just doing the searches. She's also become a political activist and really their demands are always more based on what the government needs to do to find disappeared people, but there's not much being talked about regarding what need, they need to do to stop people from disappearing. I think there's not much hope there in the same way that there's not any hope for, you know, whoever is doing this to face any sort of justice. So it's a, it's a very bleak landscape in that sense. And um, it's very hard to deal with it. You know, as a writer, as a journalist, for me, it took a very big toll on me psychologically and emotionally. And I'm still pretty far removed from the reality. It's not the reality I live with every day. So yeah, I think people normalize violence to a point where they just feel so beaten down by it that there's no will left to kind of really combat it. And the government doesn't seem to um, prioritize it at all, so. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, this is like a really chaotic time for everyone. But, um, <laughs> no, yeah. You are the first episode of the new radio show about this. So I'm honored. Um, thank you. Have a good Bye. night. Bye. Special thanks to Jem Seidel for the intro music and Robert Mackay for the show logo. 
about this is bi-weekly, so stay tuned for the next episode.